Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Good morning. So good to be back here with all of you uh, as we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment and the Four Noble Truths and suffering for all beings. Um, I want to begin today's talk noting um, that the, the Four Noble Truths and our Bodhisattva vow are inseparable. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them, corresponds to the truth of suffering. We acknowledge the suffering of all beings. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them, corresponds to the truth of the cause of suffering. We vow to end greed, hatred, and delusion within ourselves and ultimately within all beings. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them corresponds to the truth of the cessation of suffering. We vow to face and transform greed, hatred, delusion, and so forth into something beneficial to all. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it corresponds to the truth of the path. And it is that truth that we're going to be uh, exploring today, the, eight, the truth of the eight, eightfold path. And this is the path that embodies the end of suffering of all beings. And this is how we live by vow. Nice to have some clear instructions, isn't it? <laughs> vow seems it seems so huge, but this is this is how you do it, and and it, but that I'm oversimplifying it because uh, each uh, each stage takes you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into each uh, each stage of this path. So the eightfold path is far from being just a collection of lovely ideas. The path to be practiced and developed, uh, this is the path to be practiced and developed in our daily lives. And we're so fortunate to have access to the Buddhist teaching on the Eightfold Path, and so fortunate to have almost endless access and helpful commentaries from various Buddhist teachers. But when it gets right down to it, we live and develop the Eightfold Paths ourselves. And, uh, and not only our, ourselves individually, but together. And I say together because like everything the Buddha taught, the Eightfold Path is relational. It's about how we treat each other. Each step of the Eightfold Path could be a whole Dharma talk in and of itself. And so this talk is going to just be an overview of the path. But as I was saying, this is a practice for your whole life. So you will be discovering this path ongoingly as you walk it. But uh, this, is, this is just an overview, a beginning. 
eight components of the path are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And, uh, and I mentioned this uh, in our activity yesterday, but uh, that term right is not a, a moralistic judgment. Uh, what we're talking here is about um, appropriate effort, a, a appropriate speech, or uh, skillful, skillful mindfulness, skillful concentration. So as you hear that term, sort of do a little translation. Uh, what really matters is to understand uh, that we're not that we're not placing a moral judgment uh, with the eightfold path. We are seeking the most appropriate and the most skillful response to life circumstances, the response mostly like most likely to bring clarity and harmony rather than suffering. And it's helpful to notice that the eight aspects of the path can be categorized into three groups. The wisdom group consists of right view and right intention. The ethical group consists of right speech, right action, right livelihood. The concentration group consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Each aspect of the path can be understood to build and support every other aspect. But at the same time, each aspect can almost be seen as arising together, each being indispensable to the other. The Buddha describes his discovery of the Eightfold Path as being more of a rediscovery. He, he describes it as having felt as if he were walking through a primordial forest and found ruins of what was once a beautiful city of an ancient civilization. And he has a, a desire to restore the city to its former splendor. And in the connected discourses, he describes his discovery of the Eightfold Path with these words. In this way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by the awakened ones of former times. And what is that ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the awakened ones of former times? It is the noble eightfold path, the ancient road leading to direct knowledge. So the Buddha is telling us that the eightfold path is ancient wisdom. Nonetheless, each of us rediscovers the path for ourselves. Gil Fransdale says, the Buddhist path exists only in our engagement with it. We create the path with the activities of our minds, hearts, and bodies. All teachings about the Eightfold Path are simply instructions indicating how we create the path as we go. So now that we're somewhat oriented to the practice of the path, let's proceed to create it together. First, right view. Yesterday, Laurie spoke about this first aspect of the Eightfold Path, but still it can't be emphasized enough how important right view is to every aspect of the path. Our view is the basis upon which we live our lives. So today, we're gonna to start with the second component of the Eightfold Path, right intention. Right intention, along with right view, makes up the wisdom group of the Eightfold Path. 
It is the wisdom of right view and right intention that informs all the other uh, components of the path. Right view is, is the right view is the view committed to the cessation of suffering. Right intention is dependent upon right view. By applying right view to our intentions, we can discern if our intentions correspond to our commitment to end suffering. So for example, let's say you were going to go to a business meeting and your intention was to uh, be respectful to all, all the people uh, attending the meeting. It would be right view that would keep your intention on path. It would be right view that would that would say, oh, that that word that doesn't that that's not my view and that's not my intention. That 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 word would not bring respect, or that tone of voice would not be respect. So these two really work right together. In fact, I find them a little hard to separate out. They work really very closely together. Gil Fronsdale defines intention like this. Intentions are the primary or underlying motivations of what we think, say, and do. So for the Eightfold Path, the Buddha lists three intentions that cause suffering, grasping, ill will, and cruelty. The Buddha teaches that we can allow a right intention to replace a harmful one with its opposite. Right intentions that counteract grasping are gratitude and appreciation. And another is renunciation. Renunciation is just a fancy word for letting go. We develop right intentions when we let go of our self-centeredness and replace it with generosity. Our harmful intentions based in ill will can become right intentions when replaced with goodwill. But this is a process. One good way to develop the goodwill that motivates right intention is to recite the Metta Sutta regularly and take it to heart in day-to-day -day life. Offering the loving kindness phrases to ourselves and others develops goodwill. Radiating the Brahma Viharas of beneficence, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity also develop goodwill. The right intention of goodwill is developed over a lifetime, but it's never too late to start. Cruelty happens when thoughts of ill will become actual speech and actions. Compassion counteracts cruelty and develops right intentions. And it would be really nice to think uh, that we're never cruel, but what about when impulsively in anger, we might say something that's just devastating to somebody close to us or even somebody we don't know very well. I think we all have at least the seed of compassion and mostly I see a lot, a lot of compassion uh, in, in a lot of people, but this seed of compassion can grow and become the steady underpinning of right intention. Compassion grows as we realize that we are all in the exact same boat. We all suffer, and we all suffer in similar ways. The wisdom category that consists of right view and right intention supports the next category of the Eightfold Path, the ethics category. This category 
from which the Buddhist precepts arise um, is the ethics category, and it includes right speech, right action, and right livelihood. When skillful, each step expresses goodwill, compassion, and the wise letting go of self-centeredness. So this is how the Buddha describes right speech um, and as recorded in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya. It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken politely. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with the mind of goodwill. Gil Fransdale in Steps to Liberation describes right speech like this. Right speech is described as speaking what is skillful and abstaining from speech that is unskillful. Lying, slandering, and engaging in harsh or pointless speech are defined as unskillful. Words that are honest, timely, useful, friendly, and create social harmony are considered wise and skillful. It's a good mindful practice to pause briefly before speaking to make sure that what we have to say contains all of these attributes. And many times I've been grateful to have missed my turn to speak in a group setting. This gift of an enforced pause gave me time to see that what I had to say was maybe too hot-headed or really just not necessary. And it can become a useful habit to create this pause for ourselves. Something the Buddha doesn't mention, but to me seems to be an aspect of right speech, is good listening. It takes goodwill and a willingness to drop our self-centered dream to truly hear another person. Right speech is more than a set of rules. When we reflect on how we speak, we begin to know ourselves better. Our views and intentions become clearer. This is not in order to beat ourselves up when we're unskillful. It's an exercise for discovering how we can cause less suffering in the world. Next in the ethics category is right action. Like all the components of the Eightfold Path, right action is about avoiding causing harm. The task of right action are to avoid three specific things, killing any sentient being, taking anything belonging to others that is not freely given, and engaging in sexual misconduct. The Buddha also advised against intoxication. This is because when we lose our inhibitions, we are much more likely to cause harm with our speech, our actions, and, sex and sexual misconduct. By abstaining from harming in these ways, we create a safer and happier life for all beings. Next in the ethics category of the Eightfold Path is right livelihood. Right livelihood is how the is um, right livelihood is how the word sama ajiva is usually translated. But because ajiva means the way one lives. This component of the Eightfold Path could also include our unpaid work and our activities in retirement. How we make our living is important because we spend so much time doing it. 
And it's difficult to have peace of mind if we feel our work may cause harm to others. It is wonderful if we feel that our work is beneficial to ourselves and others in ways other than uh, providing an inc income, which is of course also important. One way we can all practice right livelihood is by applying the Eightfold Path to our activities and our work life. While at work, we can practice right view, right intention, right speech, and right action. The third and final category of the Eightfold Path is the concentration category. The peace of mind gained at this point by practicing each component of the Eightfold Path supports the components of the, of the concentration category. Concentration requires the joy of a peaceful mind that, that we develop as we practice all of these steps on the path. The concentration category consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration or samadhi. These are aspects of the path that focus on what we do with our minds and hearts. This is distinct from the focus of the verbal and physical actions of the previous components of the Eightfold Path. As with the previous steps of the path, the intention of the concentration components is to avoid harm and to relieve the suffering of all beings. So first, right effort. And I love this quote from the Dhammapada about right effort. Dhammapada says, it is for you to make strong effort. The Buddha only tells you how. Gil Fransdale defines right effort as distinguishing mental actions that are skillful from those that are not. He says this is the heart of right effort. By mental actions, he's referring to thoughts, impulses, feelings, or states of mind. Right effort is deciding which to cultivate and which to let go. Right effort is something we apply to every step of the Eightfold Path. There are four different, categories, four different ways we can apply right effort to ourselves when it comes to our inner thoughts and feelings. We can choose to prevent, abandon, arouse, or maintain these inner experiences. We use these four practices of right effort to develop the quality of our mind and heart. Prevention consists of avoidance and restraint. So for example, if we know we tend to indulge in anger when we're around angry people, there might be times it's wise to limit our time with certain people, at least for a period of time. Restraining is the practice of not giving in to unskillful reactions and desires. First, we have to notice our reaction of greed, ill will, and delusion when they arise. The pause it takes to notice reactivity is sometimes enough to prevent us from acting on our impulses and to stop feeding them mentally. Abandoning is about letting go of unskillful sets of mind when they arise. For example, we may notice we're judging somebody and simply choose to stop. This choosing to stop comes from our experience of how harmful it can be to judge others. Sometimes it helps 
to acquire an understanding of the unskillful state of mind. When we recognize this self-centered attachment underlying a state of mind, letting go becomes a little bit easier. Right effort is also about arousing positive states of mind. We may be able to do this by remembering mental states of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy from time spent in meditation. Right effort is also about maintaining skillful sets of mind. Content, uh, so to maintain skillful sets of mind would, be, would involve continuing actions and practices that arouse these skillful sets of, sets of mind so that they can be maintained. Practicing right effort should not be, but practicing right effort should not be used to avoid difficult thoughts and feelings. Sometimes right efforts mean seeing these inner difficulties clearly. They may need the time and space to work themselves out. Next in the concentration category of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. The Sanskrit word for mindfulness is sati. Gil Fransdale defines sati as the presence of mind needed for a strong, balanced awareness. Analio says, it is due to sati that one is able to remember what is otherwise only too easy to forget, the present moment. Hearing these descriptions can sometimes lead to a mistaken understanding that mindfulness or sati is a narrow focus on whatever it is you're experiencing, but this is not the case. This is what Analio says about sati. The suggestion that the mental state in which sati is well established, sati or mindfulness is well established, can be characterized as having breadth instead of a narrow focus, find support in some discourses which relate the lack of sati to a narrow state of mind, while its presence leads to a broad and even boundless state of mind. I think this broad, boundless state of mind is what Fransdale is referring to when he defines mindfulness as balanced awareness. There's another factor to right mindfulness besides this broad, open awareness. It is the clear comprehension that lies at the center of mindfulness practice. Mindfulness or sati allows us to be aware, uh, allows us to be aware. Clear comprehension understands what it is that we're aware of. And there are two suttas that describe that describe classic mindfulness meditations, and they are the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta. These meditations guide us progressively inward as we mindfully observe with clear comprehension the body, feeling tones such as pleasant and unpleasant feelings, mental states, and mental processes. And Laurie and Joel are going to be offering an entire intensive in January on the Satipatthana meditation. And I highly recommend it. I highly recommend attending that. It will be a deep dive into right mindfulness. 
it is my experience that, sh that shikantaza meditation or just sitting, which is how we often sit zazen at Apamata, is also a pathway to right mindfulness. As we just sit, we begin to, to as we just sit, we begin to develop a broad awareness of this present moment and its ever-changing nature. As we practice right mindfulness in our sitting practice, it begins to carry over into our daily lives. We begin to have a broader, more awake awareness of the ever-changing moment. With this deeper awareness of ourselves and all that is, it becomes much more likely that our actions can be beneficial rather than harmful. The final component of the Eightfold Path and the final component of the concentration category is concentration itself. The Sanskrit word for concentration is samadhi. Samadhi is defined as a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing subject becomes one with the experienced object. This is what Dogen means when he says that in Zazen, there is a dropping away of body and mind. With right concentration, the distinction between body and mind, mind and thought, and any of the senses and their object can become quite indistinct. As we sit, we begin to have a sense of wholeness and unification with everything. But this state of wholeness and what I would call boundlessness does not happen overnight. It is the fruit of the practice of the entire Eightfold Path over time. Gil Fronsdale says, the cultivation of concentration takes patience and consistent practice. For most people, concentration develops slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, with daily meditation practice. It can be useful to assume that only 25% of developing concentration is the intentional effort to stay present and focused. Another 25% of the practice is an attitude of equanimity and receptivity. And a full 50% of concentration is letting go and relaxing. And this has also been my, my experience, especially the part about relaxing and letting go. Although this is the linear end to the Eightfold Path, there is actually no end to this sublime practice. The beginning practice steps support, the beginning practice steps support the final practice steps and the final practice steps support all the previous steps. The steps of the Eightfold Path weave and loop around and through each other endlessly. And that is the nature of the Eightfold Path. We discover this path for ourselves as we walk it endlessly, moment to endless moment. With each step, we relieve the suffering of ourselves and others. Thank you for your attention. We have time for questions. Um, yeah, so I know that's a, I know that's a lot. I think that's probably uh, 
more than usually goes into one Dharma talk. And as I said in the beginning, this, each one of these could be its own Dharma talk. But uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm kind of glad to, uh, to give this overview. Um, and I know you, many of you have probably studied these things before, but I think it can't be studied often enough or deep enough. Um, uh, it, it, well, one, um, interestingly, I have never studied the Eightfold Path, and I think I intuitively knew that the Bodhisattva vow connected with the four um, uh, noble truths, but I never have ever, like, mapped it on. So thank you in my um, somewhat uh, my uh, sort of vacuum of remedial Buddhist learning. That was really uh, mind-blowing. Uh, my question was, it seems like you're um, really skillfully drawing on two books, one by Gil Fronsdale and another one. Could you remind us of what the books are? And the uh, yeah. uh, I wish I brought Analio's book up. Um, but Gil, Gil Fronsdale's book is, um, and Analio is the, is the king of uh, right mindfulness, by the way. If you want to know about right mindfulness, you read Analio. But uh, this, uh, this book is uh, The Steps to Liberation, the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And it is also a really good path to all of the, the whole Eightfold Path. And it also gives, our exercise yesterday came from this book. And, and for each, each it, it, it treats the Eightfold Path as a practice. And if, if you, if you re, do some reading on the path and then you have like, oh gosh, I think a month's worth, you know, like every week it offers a practice. So you can really dive, take a deep dive into that. Steps to Liberation, Gil, Gil Fronsdale, I see um, Lisa's question, F-R-O-N-S-D-A-L. I pronounce it Franzdale. I don't know if that's right or not. And then Analio, uh, uh, Venerable Analio, he's a um, Theravadan uh, practitioner, and he's really great. Um, and he has written uh, two books on the Satipatthana and one book on, one, one or two books on, uh, I guess one book, Oh gosh, I don't know. Three books and four books in total on Satipatthana and on on uh, suttas, and uh, that is an extremely deep dive into right mindfulness. And that's why I hope everybody takes Lori and Joel's uh, intensive in January because I think it's really good. Thank you, Robin, for that. And oh, I see a hand, Suzanne. Hi. Uh, thank you for that. It was a great sort of um, whirlwind kind of tri trip through the, <laughs> the, the, the yeah. it, it was, it was, it was really good though. I, I would love to sit and read it actually. Um, so I don't know if you'd be willing to share that, but it would be to have to be able to ponder it more because uh, you did a lot, a lot of thinking and research into it. I just wanted to mention that I just got something yesterday from Awakening Together Um uh, that they are doing in Minneapolis, they are doing a year-long study of the Eightfold Path, um, which is starting in January, and it will be a month-to-month -month thing, and they'll be taking each one 
for for each of the months and studying it. So and that's open to anybody. It looks really interesting. If I wasn't doing the precepts course, I was I would do that. But anyway, so that's it's open to anybody. Thank you. It's so great, Suzanne. Thank you so much for letting us know about that. I think I'll look into that for sure. Uh, yeah. Hey, Lisa. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah. So I have a similar uh, response to Robin's. It's like, oh, this is so amazing to me because I've never clearly mapped um, on you know, the Bodhisattva vow to the Eightfold Path. And you're right. It, you know, it's a tremendous amount of teaching. I mean, I appreciate that you said, you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, which to me is the absolute joy and beauty of this practice. I mean, sometimes I wonder, it's like, you know, why do... I love this practice so much. And it's because I like things. I mean, this other part of me, I love things with lots of layers that never end. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, I like books with lots of layers where you have to make associations. So um, that's really what's going on here for me, from my filters. It's like, it's so rich. And you made that so clear I mean you're such uh your way of expressing and integrating this information it made it really accessible to me in a way that wouldn't have I couldn't have done that it's just not a gift I have um but to get it is it's a lot of information for a dharma talk it's a lot but it's so, I just feel this sense of clarity around it and that I could go back to parts of it and have some ahas around how it's all connected. I hope that kind of makes sense. And now I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, Joel and Laurie's intensive where, you know, it keeps getting deeper. It's you know, the way it is going to help me in my practice path enormously. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I really, uh, I don't know, it brings me joy that these all these connections that you, that you made. Thank you. Oh, I just had a question, actually. I wanted to ask Suzanne, who was teaching that class on the Eightfold path. Do you know who the teacher is going to be? I don't. The email came from Ryan. Um, yeah, Ryan Van Wyck and CJ Johnson are teaching it. They are. Okay, Marla knows. I'm familiar with CJ. He's... Yep. Oh. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Thank you. Thank you. And you all, I have no idea when this session ends. I don't see any more hands, so perhaps it's come to an end. Yeah, I think it is. Too. Okay, we're done. Uh, thank you all so much. It's so good to be with you again this morning. So what I would like to do is to spend some time reflecting on, um, on 
on the aspect of hostility and or include anger is in that part or the cruelty and compassion. So taking those two components and um, this is again from uh, from Gil Franz, Franz Dahl, um, just to consider what's going on with 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 us when we experience these things. So I have a list of several questions. The first question is think about ways hostility appears in your life. So again, I'm kind of replacing that with anger or cruelty. Think about ways cruelty or anger appears in your life and consider expressions of anger and irritation towards others or yourself as hostility. So that's more the definition of, of hostility is anger and irritation. So just think about the way anger and hostility appear in your life. So that's the first one. Second one. Um, do your actions cause harm even in minor ways? So you've lost your temper, you've done something mean. Do these actions cause harm even in minor ways? And the next one is how are you harmed, perhaps mentally, when you express hostility? How are you harmed when you express hostility? And they're referring specifically to mentally, if that's the case. Okay, um, as you consider the effects of your hostility, how, how are you affected by this reflection from what you just reflected? Yeah, it's kind of a weird question. As you consider the effects of your hostility, how are you affected by this reflection? And then we're gonna to go to the other side to compassion. So the first question is, reflect on your relationship to compassion. Reflect on your relationship to compassion. What role has compassion had in your life, both receiving of it and having for others? What role has compassion had in your life, both receiving of it and having it, having compassion for others, receiving and having it for others, or offering it to others? So how does it feel to be compassionate? feel to be compassionate. How might it benefit you if you cultivated more compassion? And lastly, lastly, how can you have more self-compassion? 